you know, over, let's say, a 20% pay gap, about 60% of the pay gap can be explained with objective reasons, you know, structural reasons, for example, more men at top management. And then in Switzerland, we, uh, the, the study showed that about 40% of that pay gap, of the gender pay gap, is probably discrimination. Welcome to The Law in Black and White, a podcast featuring Jonathan Greenblatt and myself, Brian Parker, the co-founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider. We've been friends for over 25 years. We're both lawyers with lots of opinions. In this podcast, we will look at current events, the business of law, innovation, and diversity and inclusion in the legal industry. And occasionally, we'll even talk about sports. As the name of our show suggests, we recognize that there may be aspects of the law that require our thinking to go beyond just the black and white of the law. We share what we know, we share what we've learned, and we share what we're still learning. And this month, we are proud to recognize Women's History Month. We're honored to have with us today Veronique goy Wienheis, founder and CEO of Equal Salary. Veronique is a Swiss social entrepreneur and equal pay advocate. Veronique developed a practical and scientific certification process that allows companies to verify and communicate that they pay male and female employees equally for the same role. She has overseen its development from day one and in 2010 became the founder and CEO of Equal Salary. In 2015, Veronique was awarded the WIN, W-I-N, Global Inspiring Women Worldwide Award in recognition of her work with Equal Salary and in her contributions to equal pay and the advancement of women. If I could just set the stage to the discussion, as you know all too well, it's an unfortunate reality that gender pay gaps continue to persist in the United States and abroad. In the United States, across all industries, the gender pay gap sits at around 18%. In Europe, it's about 14%. The numbers are even more stark for women of color. This is despite the fact that women are pursuing higher education at a higher rate than men and continuing to enter the full-time workforce. The legal industry, particularly, faces a peculiar situation when it comes to the issue of gender pay gap. For large law firms, associates are paid on a predetermined pay scale based off years of experience, leading to a narrower gap in pay at the more junior levels of progression in the legal system. But amongst partners, the gap widens considerably. A 2020 study by Major Lindsay in Africa found there to be a 44% gap between male and female partners at large U.S. law firms. That's the backdrop we want to have this discussion against. Companies often promote their commitment to diversity, but are less likely to showcase equal data on what they are doing to ensure equity, particularly in terms of the gender pay gap. Equal salary has provided an innovative model for tackling this issue. Veronique, we're thrilled and delighted that you've agreed to join us today. I'm excited to uh, jump in and explore your company, the reason you started, and maybe the lessons that we can take for the U.S. So thank you for being with us. Um, I, I wonder uh, at first if you can just help our audience understand, um, you'll, you'll be the best person to do this, um, exactly uh, what is uh, equal salary? How, how would you describe it? 
Well, I would say that um, it is a practical way for companies to actually ensure that they actually walk the talk, as they, they say in English, uh, that uh, fair pay is a reality into their companies seen through a third party because this is, you know, this is actually the, the fact. Most companies will say that they do have equal pay for men and women. But when it is the moment to prove it, it is quite a challenge for most companies to do it. And thus, this idea to come with a practical solution, a certification, something that is quite, you know, for companies, a sensible way to address an issue. And to do it with recognized partners to bring in the competencies and the credibility. This is what actually was the aim of of creating equal salary. Yeah, and and one question we like to ask founders, and sometimes people ask us, is uh, the inspiration or the why. Um, what was it in your background, professionally, academic training, that inspired this work, or or maybe it was just your experience working? But love to understand what inspired you to uh, to do this work. Well, in terms of study, I studied uh, economics. And I always wondered why, actually. But uh, <laughs> uh, I guess na- I guess now we know <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Actually, that uh, with equal salary, it made it clear. But and from several years, you know, I've been uh, an entrepreneur. I decided when uh, just before I had my first child, I decided I would uh, manage my life as an entrepreneur, uh, so I could manage uh, my work-life balance. And um, I started uh, two companies. And in 2003, I um, actually decided to go back to, to school to, to study. I did a postgraduate in um, organization management and communication. Uh, that was, uh, it was quite actually uh, quite advanced, you know, me studying economics with books from the early, uh, early 19th century. All of a sudden, I found myself with books with knowledge management and online trainings, which was quite uh, uh, new. And I had to do a paper. To, to finalize that uh, postgraduate study. And I decided, I don't know, don't ask me too much how I ended up, but I decided to do equal salary. I had no knowledge of a certification. I didn't know much about HR. I had uh, gender was not exactly my topic, but I had studied economics and I knew that the problem was with companies. It was about companies setting the right system and about companies taking the right action to ensure they had set the right system and communicate about that. And that's the, the, the certification. Yeah, and studied economics, went back to school, but you were living as an entrepreneur, right? So you're really in charge and, I guess, earning whatever money uh, the, the market dictated. <laughs> what, where did the thought come from that women were being paid less? Was it from your academic study or was it talking to colleagues? I'm wondering how that would have come to you as a, as an entrepreneur. Well, actually, I think in life, we live in a society. Our society values uh, money. Uh, everything that we do, I mean, you are important only if you work and you earn money, right? If you're a woman at, at, at staying at home, you're not very much valued. All the mothers at home, they know about this unpleasant feeling that they do not actually exist in real because they're not making money, they're not getting paid for the super important job they are doing. So it starts there, you know, as a woman, this is something that is deeply embedded in yourself. But then also as an entrepreneur, you know, you have to value your, your, your service. And this is also a tough question. We are, I'm sure you have been confronted also with this issue. 
but also what is really important in a society, what we have seen now through the years, government have started putting out statistics because it's only when you measure something that you can start addressing the issue. And they've been starting, you know, in Switzerland since many years are now. I, I don't know exactly when they started, but probably early 2000, they started uh, uh, issuing statistics on that strategic point, which is, you know, the difference, uh, the gender pay gap. Uh, probably before it was just you know just a big uh, a big uh, pot. Nothing was really done by gender, but little by little, uh, numbers has been uh, statistic by gender has been published, and this is really a, a nevralgic number, right? And obviously, when I studied in two thousand four two thousand five, for me it was striking because. It was around twenty percent. Uh, the, the 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 pay gap was around twenty percent. Yes. And um, once you have these kind of things, you know, and there's been a lot of, of, I remember at the time when I studied, there was always a lot of discussion about these numbers. They get challenged all the time. They say, yes, but it's been calculated this way and that way. But at least it was on the table and it showed there was a problem. And actually for me, it was just the start of the discussion, the how much the, the, the gap was not so much so important. But there was a problem, and then how you address the problem and bring a very practical way to, to address the problem. Veronique, I, I want to talk about the independent uh, certification part of what you're measuring, because I think that's so key as you put your finger on. But before we do that, I was struck by the way entrepreneurial thinking works, including in non-business context. In the, I don't know whether you consider yourself an NGO of a sort. But you're a nonprofit organization, I take it. Even so, it started with an idea that you had, something you saw that was wrong. And as you said, you didn't know quite how you were going to tackle it at the beginning, but you started. And for young people, I think that's very inspirational to hear that you didn't have a plan, but you had something you wanted to address and it formed as you developed it. Would you like to comment on that before we go to the certification sure. issue? With pleasure, because actually it's it was really a very special period of my life. I, I, I can still remember actually the hesitation. I really, I, it took me a while just to go ahead. As I said before, I'd, I mean, I was, for me, it was like, wow, I had this huge idea, which was quite exciting, actually. And, and I was also in these studies that was very stimulating. So that was really helpful that, to, to do that postgraduate. And I, I encourage anyone to go back to study after 20 years uh, of work because this is so enriching. I mean, it's so uh, beautiful to be able to do that. And, and with that knowledge, still, I was kind of hesitating. I didn't know, as I said, nothing HR. I, wasn't, I never worked with large companies. Certification looked very boring, I have to say. <laughs> and I've <laughs> seen from my, my angle with a creative mind. And yet, you know, for me, it was so important to be a woman and, and, and have this certitude that I'm being rewarded for whatever I do. And uh, this is something, you know, I felt, you know, to bring this to the world was something that I could really uh, be proud of. And I wanted to make a difference in that respect. So at some point, you know, as you know, John, I have been living uh, always in nature. I walk a lot. I always walk almost every day. And I decided that like I do when I go into the mountains, I just take one step at a time and I'll just go on as long as I could. And, you know, as long as nothing would stop me. 
So this is how I started. And one day I just said, okay, let's go for it. I think that's really inspirational and educational, particularly for our younger listeners. Um, on independent certification, if I understand it correctly, there are two aspects to the certification. You, as equal salary, certify based on measurements, and then you have an audit that's done by a, a big four auditing firm, as I understand it, of the results to make sure that the company stays in compliance. Do I have that correct? Okay, so what we do, we have set up a, a system, a procedure, a certification procedure, and uh, we have decided that there are two aspects in that procedure, which is a quantitative part and then a qualitative part. The whole thing is the procedure. So we have set up the criteria and also the requirements that are expected from companies to fulfill. So this is a, a system. It's been it's presented by the, the Equal Salary Foundation. And as I mentioned before, we work with partners. So we have developed the first part, which is the quantitative as part, uh, with the methodology to do the salary analysis. We have developed that with the University of Geneva. And why them? It's because it has their knowledge, their expertise has been retained by the Swiss federal court in the case for discrimination. The woman that won the case, thanks to that uh, expertise, received 300,000 Swiss francs, which is about the same thing in dollars. And that made the jurisprudence. That was amazing for Switzerland. It was a big case. So for us, it was like the validation of that expertise. This is the, the methodology that we use. So this is for the first part. And for the second part, what we did is we work with companies, with certifying companies, like we started with SGS, which is, uh, they are the world leader in certification and inspection. And now we also work with PwC. They have become our, actually our, pre, our main partner. PwC in Switzerland, but we do actually, uh, we have the whole network behind them. So did you find resistance to independent certification from companies at the beginning? Because they're opening up their internal processes to you and their data. Uh, yes. But as you say, it's the only way to really get fair measurement. So what was the process that you went through? Well, to start with, we work with, actually, you know, I thought, you know, when I started that, I thought we would have the first client would be the large companies because of this diversity and inclusion uh, interest. And of course, you know, this is the center. We say this equal pay is, is foundational to diversity and inclusion, right? This is, if you can address that as a, as a fundament, you can address anything from there because you have taken the hard step to, to address the thing. Well, we didn't have the big companies to start with, actually. It took quite a while for the first one to come in. We had smaller companies. And I mean, smaller companies, you know, they are kind of, they are somehow, in a way, easy, easier to, to do the business. They are not so complicated and structured and uh, legal system and all that. But they are still, I mean, the, the, the biggest um, obstacle to equal pay is actually the even though companies do believe they have equal pay, there's still this little nagging doubts. What mm. if? What if if we don't have equal pay? And then if we do, what if it, it gets known that we don't have equal pay and then we have a big problem? We might even have a, a problem with our image eh, in terms of reputation. So this is actually the biggest fear is really to make sure that um, companies, you know, 
know that this is important and that if they consider it is a risk, that they should actually address it frontally before it becomes a, 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 a PR a, problem. Well, a legal problem. And yeah. this, you know, takes uh, some, uh, we need to, we communicate about that, we explain what we do, we ensure confidentiality, which may sound like um, an opposition to transparency, but we do not, we do not think so because transparency may work, but then it, it is also how you, you bring it up because transparency can also be com- completely disruptive. And thus, it is important to be able to, to bring that in a very uh, clear way and also give guarantee that we, we do not disclose anything and that things can only improve from the moment they come in. They can only prove, improve the situation because, one, they will know where they stand, whether they make it or don't, but they know where they stand. And also we will give them all the important information that will help the company to actually address any uh, gender pay gap that my, 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 even if it forbid them to be uh, certified. Yeah. You know, one of the sayings that we use in America, I assume, you know, where you are too, but you'll, you'll uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is this idea of uh, carrots and sticks, right? There's uh, uh, incentives, disincentives. Meritocracy. Uh, uh, say, say it one more time. Like merit- meritocracy on, uh, that you will receive if you perform yes. well. No, that's exactly right. But on the other side, we talked about legal, there's probably brand, they fear consequences if this comes out. I wonder, now that, that you've had some time with the certification and it's taken hold, or companies, uh, give you a, a quick example, um, in the United States, say with diversity and inclusion um, and including people of color, I think folks have always said, okay, this is the right thing to do. More studies have come out that say, Diverse teams are actually more profitable. And then you've seen um, the social unrest of last summer with some of the police involved. So I think companies are now saying, hey, we need to lean into this. This is, this is what people want us to do. I'm wondering, um, are people, uh, companies, seeing this as an opportunity? Like, hey, this is how we, this meritocracy, we should be doing this anyway. Or are they seeing this as a necessary burden? I think, you know, the motivation for companies to do it are very diverse. It really depends from one company to the others. If you look at who who has been certified on our website, you will see there are all kinds of companies, all kinds of sector. It goes, we even had churches. So believe it, Protestant churches that have done it. We have, uh, you know, collectivities, you know, we have the Global Fund, for example, and we have Philip Morris. I mean, it goes from, we have small, large companies. So the the motivation are very diverse. It can be to attract and retain talent. It can be also for public tenders, for example. In Switzerland, it's compulsory for companies that are bidding on public tenders. They have to have equal pay and they have to actually sign that they have equal pay. So they better know ahead of time if they do actually have it instead of going blindly into the, a trap. It could also for, you know, good governance reasons. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons. And also some companies, they know actually if they don't, a lot of companies are still very male uh, dominated and eventually they know they will have a recruiting problems. They need to be they need to a more diverse company already by gender and larger um, groups, of course. And thus, you know, they have to use practical tools to drive that change into the, the system. And this is a very down-to-earth, 
system and tool that will drive, that will bring this. It will bring the fairness, the equity, but it also will bring eventually the diversity that all companies should actually aim at. Yeah, and and I love the idea uh, and the company that that what you guys are doing. But I think what's important to me, which I'd like to pick up on our discussion, is that the certifications not existing in a vacuum. There are other systemic factors at work that are helping it um, move synergistically. Yes. So, and I, I want yeah. to just to finish because you ask in terms of opportunity and burden. What I think is also what we have noticed with companies. You know, they may have the impression that there's not much choice at some point. Uh, but uh, And, you know, not all the companies are doing it so far. But at some point, some company, you know, they'll do it because they feel they don't have a choice. They need to do it. But what is interesting, it's once they start going into the process, because it's such a serious approach, we say that because it is true, we on, you know, we only have one level. You either get it or you don't. And we aim at excellence because we believe that for in, in, the, in the matter of, of pay, in matter of equal pay, they, they are, you know, it's, it's on, it can only be what, uh, fulfilling the criteria or not. And because of that, the company actually has a systematic way to go across that. And at some points, their mind changes because all of a sudden they realize all the added value that they get out of the exercise and you know also what is quite interesting is because we have this quantitative and then qualitative aspect everybody focuses of course on the pay gap you know on the gen, the, the assessment of the gen because it's numbers numbers are always of course very interesting and the kind of the qualitative the audit part is kind of second rating it gets and yet it is actually much more important and the companies once they go through that they get so much out of it and they get so much thoughts and information. And it, it is actually, not, the company it will be changed <laughs> forever. Once it goes through that process, it will not be the same company uh, anymore. It will be a better company. And uh, because of that, companies are really proud once they finish it. They are really proud of what they have achieved. They are, and, you know, a lot of you get challenging. Oh, you do that for... Uh, reputation, you do that for images. Yes, but at some point, you know, we are talking about a cause because equal pay is also a cause. And at some point, you know, once you have really sweated out to get something and it is on top uh, an important change in the society that you are participating to, we do actually want company to communicate about that, about the effort that it has been, that it hasn't been easy. And yet, you know, that how proud they are of having been able to go through it. So, I, you know, I totally understand what you're saying, Veronique. And I can imagine, <clears throat> I think we see this with a lot of organizations, when they go through some self-examination and when it's to achieve what people fundamentally believe is right, they initially go through a fear, well, what if we don't measure up? But as you say, the exercise itself is cathartic. And, um, and I, I have found that when companies I've been affiliated with have done things like this, at the end of the day, whether they meet the standard or not, of course, they want to meet the standard. The examination process is almost as important. And the fact that they were all in it together is as important and matters to the employees as much as the ultimate outcome. So I can completely understand what you're saying. We talked a little bit about 
you're teaming up with uh, an academic institution. You explain why that was and how that validates your methodology. But I'd be interested in if you could explain the European Commission role in this, because to me, the more aspects of validation you can afford someone who goes through the process at the end of the day, the more incentive you're creating for them to do it. Because in the equivalent of the US might be getting the gold standard in environmental protection or whatever whatever it is that you are want to get that certification in, the higher level certification it is, the greater it is for your uh, organization. So how did the EC get involved and how important is that? Well, actually, how it happened um, is uh, when I, you know, I, I developed the certification between 2005 and 2010. We were um, financially supported by the Swiss government to develop it because uh, equal pay is a priority for them, uh, was and still is actually. And uh, when I finished developing it and I thought, okay, now let's do, uh, it was in Switzerland, I thought, okay, let's do a pilot in Europe, you know. And I wrote to them and um, actually I got invited to speak about it. And uh, I thought, you know, we were going to roll out something, a pilot somewhere in Europe. But actually it doesn't work like that. And anyway, but it was quite interesting because when I was there, they said, look, this is a very uh, pioneer uh, um, a, a way to address the, the topic. You are the only one on, on that uh, on that issue. And they asked me if I agreed to have it in a study that uh, actually analyzed 131 projects. It was non non legislative um, project for equality in the professional world. And uh, out, out of the 131, they retained 26 and uh, among which uh, the equal salary certification, which actually, you know, for us, you know, it's created in Switzerland. We are not a member of the European Commission. And um, so we were out of scope for them. But because it was unique, they decided to retain, uh, to retain it and actually uh, put it in their report for equal pay. And do you think that matters to the companies that you're... Of course, uh, it, at, at, yeah. at least at the beginning, at the very beginning, it, it was very important. On the other hand, you see what happens. We are, we are not a government body. We are an NGO, yes, and, yet we are, and, and we are independent and we are private. We are actually a social enterprise. We are a foundation because this is the only juridical or legal entity that we can apply to us. But nevertheless... We are a social entrepreneur. We have a business model. We get a certain amount for each company that gets certified. And because of that, uh, uh, an official body such as the European Commission or even the Swiss government will never take a stand for us because we we are private. We have a a business model behind it. But nevertheless, it was fully recognized as unique. Thank you. I I think this is uh, the, the understanding here the systems, uh, the inspiration, um, what, how you're doing what you're doing is, can be incredibly instructive for us here in the U.S. And when we look at the U.S. legal model, we see some of the same. Um, I know that you haven't studied uh, legal, but if you'll indulge this question, we have young attorneys come into the profession and it's you know sort of relatively lockstep. But by the time that they're senior and certainly partners, we see this pay gap emerge. And it's issues of uh, credit, who brought in what, uh, what contributions are important and that sort of thing. So I think it's something that 
the profession has to continue to make strides in. I wonder what advice would you have based on your experience and uh, what you've focused on uh, in Europe uh, for here in the U.S.? Um, how can we take some of these lessons and as a profession drive more pay equity uh, at senior levels for, for our lawyers between men and women? Well, I'm, I'm sure well, we, we've been talking about the gender pay gap, huh? and a gender pay gap is an overall uh, concept. And uh, as at the foundation, we really address the discrimination part of the gender pay gap. When I say that, it means that, like in Switzerland, our statistical office, the federal uh, statistical office, has uh, measured that um, you know over, let's say, a 20% pay gap, about 60%. Uh, is explainable, and uh, 60% of the pay gap can be explained with objective reasons, you know, more men, you know, structural reasons, for example, more men at man top management, uh, less, uh, and women on the, on the other side of the, the, the hierarchy. Uh, some sectors are, have uh, highly, um, are more male-dominated with high pay, uh, female sectors like health, uh, with uh, female dominated is less remunerative. So those are structural um, information that explain why there is a, a difference in pay. And then, um, and about in Switzerland, we, uh, the, the studies show that about 40% of that pay gap, of the gender pay gap, is probably discrimination. And then, this is, those are numbers. Those are macroeconomic numbers. Then you have to take the companies, you know, as, a, as in itself. And so, what are the roles of the company? What can company do? Well, you know, it, it's really start putting together a, a salary policy that makes sense, that is, that is clear, that takes in, that decide what is important. Why do you, you retain people? What do you get from people? What makes it, you know, what has to be remunerated? Sorry. What makes a difference between a person and another? And there are some objective factors, starting with uh, the, the education, the experience, sometimes the seniority, depending, you know, it really depends on the sector. It depends what you expect from people. And this is what we call setting up an objective salary policy. And based on that, also make sure you have the position are clearly defined and what, you know, what goes into it and what is necessary. Once you start you know, building up in a very objective way and then also making sure, because this is the salary part, but it also means that you need clear HR processes Having processes ensure objectivity. Right. This is addressing, you know, stereotypes. This is how you address prejudice and biases. This is how you address the glass ceiling. I mean, all those are all objective factors that allows you to bring as much transparency as possible and objectivity. And once you have that, you're getting close to what is fair. Well, thank you. This is, uh, it's been a, a lovely conversation. And uh, uh, I, you know, I personally have learned a lot and we want to, you know, roll up our sleeves and figure out how we can take some of these lessons uh, to our model uh, and to the larger community. So we, we move into a fun part uh, of our, uh, of our show where we call our pet peeves and uh, guests usually talk about uh, what's bothered them or irritated them, or you can just throw a funny fun fact uh, or, or what have you. 
So we'll start with you as the as the guest of honor. Uh, if you have a pet peeve that you'd like to share, and I'll just remind our audience that uh, you can always send in pet peeves ahead of the show. Maybe we will read yours uh, on the uh, on the next pod. Uh, but with that, we are going to go to the guest of the hour for her pet peeve. So that would be me. I guess the, the guess. yes. <laughs> so you know, I've been thinking, and I've been thinking, and I've been wondering, and I decided, you know, what really irritates me: the politically correct. <laughs> I, I, I think you just stole John's pet peeve. <laughs> Did I? Oh. No, no. Except I'm, except because of political correctness, I wasn't. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> so, so now he's freed. You've liberated him. <laughs> no, because this is totally unbearable that's for great. me. It's totally unbearable. Okay, that's uh, that's mm-hmm. awesome, uh, John. I don't know if you can follow that one up, but uh, you're welcome to try. That was great. <laughs> well, if I were excused from doing it, as you know I would be thrilled but I I, yeah, uh, yeah. I've decided I'll take it on uh, because in the last week since we did our last pet peeves I've had yet another incident that brought, reminded me of an ongoing pet peeve that I'm sure we all experience which is there part there's two parts to this one is the fact that when you want to talk to a company about anything technology in order for something something didn't get shipped right Of course, they want you to fit into one of the three computer categories that cause you not to have to speak to a person. Okay, that's one pet peeve. But then you get to a person. If you're persistent and you're willing to spend 20 minutes waiting and hitting dials on your phone until you finally get to a person, you get one who's generally 18,000 miles away from the center of the activity that you're talking about, who is super polite extremely uh, wants to be superficially helpful, but has no authority to do anything and doesn't understand anything about what you're complaining (laughs) about. So you end up more frustrated than you were (laughs) when you started. And you're like, why do you have this system where you're going to shunt me to some island somewhere? I'm going to be talking to a very nice person who has no authority and uh, and doesn't understand what I'm asking for and can't solve my problem and right. then wants to be raided at the end and says, right. could you please fill something out that says uh, how well I did in solving your problem, which is horrible. Right. You didn't do anything to solve my problem. I still have the problem. Right. And, and now I'm aggravated on top of it. Or more aggravated, I should say. <laughs> Um, so, so I'm going to, uh, my pet peeve is going to be, you know, fairly straightforward, but I'm going to take a, a, a personal privilege, I guess. And, and also, cause I, I tend to relish in this part of the show. So I want our guests to know that I can be happy about things as well. Um, so as a person that was raised by a single mother, I was looking forward to this conversation. And so my pet peeve is very straightforward, uh, which is, um, gender pay gap, right? We've got people like my mother that are trying to take care of families and kids, Um, and doing the same jobs and being paid less. Uh, That not only bothers me because it was a personal situation, but it's just, uh, I think it's an affront to uh, just my sensibilities. Now, the thing I'm happy about, I was texting John late in the night uh, because in March, as we we head to April. 
Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, that, that, that excites me too. <laughs> but uh, as we head into April, my favorite time of the year, because it's, uh, it's the Masters time, uh, and it's my favorite sport event of the year. So I just want to applaud uh, in an era where we are talking about why we need so much more change and progress, and we do, especially in the racial area of uh, gender. Lee Elder, uh, who was the first black uh, to play in the, in the Masters, has been added as a, a ceremonial starter, which is, it's an honor that's just saved for very few greats to, to hit the first shots off. I don't think he'll hit the shot because he's, you know, he's a little bit older, but I just think this is an incredible statement about the Masters and the whole community of golfing, and I, I, I love it. So I'll end on a, on a positive note, and, um, you know, we're, we're grateful well, it's that a pleasure. you joined us. Today. I'll end up also to say that in April, I understand that on, if I'm not mistaken, on April 6th, it is Equal Pay Day USA, which is actually quite late, and you may wonder what is Equal Pay Day. Well, Equal Pay Day is the day until a woman has to work to actually get the same amount of money as her colleague, her equal colleague, had gotten the 31st of the previous December. Three months and six days. Can you believe that it? How scandalous this is? Right. Well, if I understood well, it, in yeah. the States, it will take place on April 6th. Our uh, director of operations <laughs> is uh, shaking vigorously, so I think you can expect something on uh, social media, but thank you for uh, reminding us uh, of that. And it's, um, uh, as you said, uh, not appropriate. Um, thank you. So, Veronique, we, we really want to thank you. Um, and to our listeners, we want to thank Veronique Goy-Wienheis for joining us today. Veronique, as always, it's a pleasure. Your English was about 10 million times better than my French, as you know. So I think we had no impediments in this discussion. Um, and we look forward to uh, talking to you again, Definitely. I hope. And Brian and I are going to discuss what we learned from our conversation with Veronique. Yeah, well, so I guess I'll start, John, and say um, uh, last week we ended that we were changing the game. And this week we've gone international. So I think in only uh, only a couple of years, it's pretty good progress. Now we'll wait for the you know all the money and and everything to catch up to that. But no, look, it was uh, it was super valuable. I'll say the thing that that stood out to me most was how Veronique uh, tied money to where we are. And what I mean by that, I try to take a note as she was saying. She talked about in our society value being tied to uh, to money. And how, because we do do that, motherhood is undervalued. And we have pulled that devaluing of women into the, the, the for pay world uh, as well. And that could be one of the reasons that we see these pay gaps. And I just thought it was interesting how she tied, uh, tied those two uh, things together. Yeah. And for me, there's three things about what she said that really resonate. Um, one is, even though what she does is in Europe, we can always learn from what's being done around the world. And there's absolutely no reason that what they're doing in Europe doesn't work here. That's number one, as to the gender pay gap point. And the second thing, which we didn't get a chance to discuss with her in depth, and maybe we'll come back and do another discussion, is how you could transpose this system onto the legal diversity world. Where uh, it's more complicated for lots of reasons, uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't need it. 
And particularly, I mean, and she talked about how it's uh, all or nothing in terms of her certification. You either have equal pay or you don't have equal pay. The diversity issues are layered with other things like advancement and promotion and, and, uh, but they can be measured and you can come up with ways for people to agree on the uh, mechanism and have uh, independent certification. That's the second thing I was going to say. I think that the independence of the certification is so critical if you want to have credibility. You, you need to have someone trusted saying you meet the standard, whatever the agreed standard is. And I think we could learn from that and import that into our system. And the third thing was just the power of an idea, which never ceases to amaze me that she took this concept and I've known her through this whole time, but didn't really understand in any, with any depth what she was, how it was developing in her mind and then in practice. But she took an idea and she made it into something. And we've seen that, you know, in so many different contexts, including what you and I are doing that I never cease to be inspired by it. And I hope that our listeners are inspired too, because there is now a thing called equal salary that matters to companies in Europe and that gives them something to be proud of at the end of the day. And that came from thought, thought from one person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well said by both of you. And, you know, so I'll pick up on your last point and then, you know, I, I think I'll make uh, a couple of comments on some of the systemic things that I heard. And I wrote, I just wrote the word inspire. Um, and I think it's uh, obviously uh, in, uh, what, she did in taking that idea that you pointed out, I think we'd be remiss. And this isn't just for women. I think it's for all people. Um, and it's, but especially folks that are coming up in their career of following their passion and not being afraid to take a risk. I mean, she went back to school and, you know, I, I think for women, uh, this is true. I think for uh, diverse and underincluded groups, it's true. Sometimes you swing through the fence and you'd be surprised at what you can change. So I, I, I just thought that that was a great point of inspiration for hopefully uh, some people in our audience. The other, uh, we talk about, uh, and you said maybe we'll have a part two, that we didn't get to diversity and inclusion, which we talk a lot about in terms of this independent certification. And I thought there were some other lessons too in terms of systemic. Um, and you talked about the, you know, sort of the PR, the, the lack of being able to hire people maybe. But the role of the European Commission uh, in this, and so I think as we think about diversity here, is there an independent, you know, process? Is there a governing body that can be involved? Some of the work that, say, like a Goldman Sachs has done, saying we won't take your company public unless you have a woman on the board. Can we replicate that in the diversity space? And just briefly, I, I think she's making a very important point, and I'd uh, love to draw the, the audience's attention to it. And maybe there's a hybrid, because like you said, you're either um, equal pay or you're not. And her first uh, was quantitative. And she said, okay, people tend to just go to the, high, uh, the, the top line, and what are the numbers, and uh, focus on that. But you had brought up, you know, maybe there's a continuum. Maybe there's a platinum and a gold and a silver. Um, I don't want to encourage or discourage any progress just because you didn't get to, to, to platinum. But the other point that I think merits a lot of study is the qualitative piece of that. And what she talked about being able to learn around diving in deeply to the numbers and understanding what's behind those numbers and the story that they can tell uh, for the path forward. So 
those were just a couple of other observations that I thought very instructive and, and you know, as you, as you well said, um, part of the lessons that we can take from overseas. Well, uh, that was that was well said, Brian, and I think a good place to end the discussion. There's so much more we can do and we will do, uh, but I thought it was really interesting and I'm very grateful for Ver- to Veronique for sharing her thoughts with us today. Brian and I thank you all for listening to The Law in Black and White. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find us at legal-innovators.com for even more insights. You can also subscribe to our podcast and follow Legal Innovators on social media to see what we're up to. We look forward to talking to you next time and stay safe until we hear and see you again.